Snap Studios. A fire is always best after a day in the woods. When there's a little bit of a chill in the air. After the fish are cooked up, the marshmallows roasted. After the bottles passed around. No, Malik, that's not for you. Grow up first. A fire's best when you've got nowhere you've got to be. When you're looking at the dance of orange flame, the crackle of dried wood, the eventual quiet of everyone waiting to see who's going to go first. All of it together sets the stage. So, pass the bottle back over to me because Snap Judgment proudly presents Campfire Tales 4 the primal episode because it's out here in the woods where you find out who you really are my name is Ben Washington howl at the moon if you dare because you're listening to Snap Judgment Now then, for our first story on the Snap Judgment Campfire Tales episode, we take you to the borderlands. You see, Rocky Elmore nowadays is a retired Border Patrol agent, but back in the 90s, he was stationed just east of San Diego, right along the border fence, in a place called Otai Mountain. Snap Judgment. When I first got to Otai Mountain, the place felt different from other places I had been. Because it's quite easy as a Border Patrol agent to feel like your top dog. But when I went up to Otai Mountain, it set in that there were predators there that could kill a human being nearly instantly. Mountain lions were the top dog up there. Under normal circumstances, a mountain lion attack against a human being would be extremely rare. But the cats that lived up on Otai Mountain lost their fear of man. There wasn't a lot of things up there for them to eat other than rabbits and and just a very, very few deer. So people immediately went into the food chain, and it was a pretty easy source for them. All they had to do was pick out a group, follow it, wait for somebody to get left behind, and that guy was a goner. So we found quite a few bodies, and we found them on a fairly regular basis. Now... As far as I know, none of these kills went onto the official California record. Uh, Things that happen down on the border just have a tendency to stay on the border. About four years in, I had a trainee with me. We're working a midnight shift out at Otai Lakes. Sensor had went off and we responded to it. Now, I had always carried a revolver previous to this night, but the Border Patrol changed its policy and decided that everyone would carry a semi-automatic handgun. It came with a holster, a different type holster than what I had ever used before, and it fit very, very close to the body. A few minutes went by, and we started to hear a very, very slight noise up on the hillside. I noticed my trainee was starting to get 
pretty excited about it. And then I realized that it was only an animal because it was much too quiet to be people. So I told him, said, it's probably a deer, let it pass. Within probably five to 10 seconds after that, I heard the most terrifying noise I ever heard in my life. And it was a mountain lion screaming. I've always heard it described as the scream of a, of a woman being murdered, but I have never heard a human scream that could come anywhere near what a mountain lion scream is like. It's something that you just have to hear for yourself to truly understand. So when we, when we heard this, the scream, both of us turned around. I, I, I never moved so fast in my life. And I caught a glimpse of this full-grown mountain lion charging us. I went for my gun, and I could not get the gun out. It was stuck. And I was ripping and tearing as hard as I could on that pistol. And at the same time, saw the cat charging right at us. So I started yelling at the trainee to shoot him, but I didn't hear any gunfire. I don't know if the trainee could not get his gun out or if he was just petrified with fear. And at the very last second, the cat, he darted off to the side. And within a nanosecond, I lost sight of him, and then I heard him hit its true prey, which was the deer. And then the screaming started all over again, and it was worse than the first scream. It was a combination of the animal he had hit, and then the cat just tearing it to pieces. But as scary as mountain lions were, they weren't the only thing out there to be afraid of. In early March 1995, I was still on the training unit. We were heading out to Otai Lakes on a midnight shift. Heavy fog had rolled in, and the area had also burned off recently in a wildfire, so the ground and the trees were black with soot, and then the fog was sweeping over that. So we got turned around in the fog and got lost. So we walked around in vain for several more minutes trying to find our trail. We couldn't do it, but there was a little tributary feeding the south end of Otai Lake, and as we were walking it, we heard a very loud single splash hit the water. And it sounded as if some exceptionally large object had fallen from the sky, so we knew it wasn't people running across the creek. It was something else. Now, we're always trying to stay quiet on night operations, so everyone looked at the training officer. The training officer just nodded his head toward the creek, and we all started heading that way without speaking a word. As we started to close in, I noticed the training officer drew his firearm, and I thought this was a little strange, but something had uh, set him off and put him on guard. And I suddenly started to get this sense of dread and doom and intense sadness sweep over me. It was as if something was projecting its emotion onto me. It was starting to mess with, with my mindset and my feelings. And I knew we were about to see something horrible and I started trying to mentally prepare myself for that. But after getting up to the creek and noticing there were four or five coyotes prancing up and down very anxiously along the water's edge, we couldn't see anything. But I could hear something over in that water, as if a person 
was shuffling their feet very quietly, going up what little current was there. So at that point, everyone had their guns drawn. The coyotes were staring straight into the middle of the creek, exactly where we were looking, and didn't seem to be bothered one bit that we walked up to them. And it was obvious that they were scared. I was literally standing no more than 18 inches away to a coyote on my right side, and I paid no attention to him, and he paid no attention to me. We started trying to turn our flashlights on and follow this sound upstream, but the fog blinded us, shining the lights back in our own eyes, and there were no footprints to be found. The only prints there were tracks for the coyotes and tracks for our own boots. And that was it, nothing else. The coyotes, their tails were tucked and their ears were lowered and they left, they got out of there. We eventually just gave up, but we knew whatever that was in the water would eventually walk out in front of the scope that the supervisor set up on the mountain in order to work the mesa below because these scopes picked up on heat. An animal would put off a certain shape and amount of heat Rocks put off heat. Anything that collected heat through the day would give that heat up through the night. For instance, a, a person walking, say, a mile or two miles away, they didn't really look like a person at that distance. They looked kind of like an upright coffin. So you had to judge what was giving the heat up. And Jeb was probably the best scope operator in the Border Patrol. So he would be able to see it and, and call out whatever was over in that water. And about 20 minutes later, we started to hear bits and pieces of a radio transmission because a couple of agents got in the area and suddenly Jeb called them off. Now the agents were a little reluctant to leave because they wanted to finish what they started and they didn't really understand why they were being called off. It didn't make any sense to them. But Jeb told them again and emphasized a little more strongly that they needed to get in their vehicles and leave the area. He said, there is a very large predator following the two of you. Now these guys were totally unaware of it. They couldn't see anything. Nevertheless, they did what Jeb told them to because you didn't question his orders, you just did it. So that was the talk of the station for the next few days. And People were kind of throwing ideals around as to what they thought it might be. And of course, everyone thought probably it was a mountain lion because we spoke informally with the Bureau of Land Management and they said that one of these cats was about 200 pounds. But time went by, Jeb got a new job back east somewhere. And before he left, he told a story to a few of the agents that he knew well. And what Jeb told was that on the night in question, of the mountain lion following the two agents that it was not a mountain lion at all. What he actually saw was some creature come up out of the Otai River and it walked upright like a man. He said but it had the largest heat signature Jeb had ever seen on the night vision scope. The creature was right behind them and it dwarfed them both. Estimated it probably 10 feet. I heard one guy say maybe 12 feet. This was very much like what happened to us at the creek in that it was invisible to their naked eye. It was only visible to the scope. 
I never brought the subject up for quite a while after that. I never talked to Jeb. I was a trainee. Trainees did not go up and talk to supervisors, and I never dared question what he saw that night. As time went on, over the next few years, I began to hear several more stories. These stories involved both agents and people crossing illegally. In every sighting, this beast would chase either the people or would chase the agents and could have easily caught them, but never did. It's like he chased them to scare them off and then gave up the chase. And there would be no, no sign found, no footprints, no sign of the creature whatsoever. I didn't have any real clues or any real idea of what, what all this meant. But one night while I was working the mountain on a swing shift, I run into some BLM personnel, and these were environmentalist types. They weren't law enforcement. And there was about 10 of them up there, maybe more, and they were hanging out uh, at Buttewick Canyon. And that was one of our more remote, treacherous areas. I was kind of wondering what had brought them up there. So I pulled up, started talking to them, asked them what they were doing, and they said they'd come up to look for bear scat, which I thought was a little unusual because I didn't think there was any bears anywhere near Otai Mountain. We'd never found tracks for one, no scat for one. Nobody had ever reported a sighting. So toward the end, I said, uh, well, what do you think about some kind of a Sasquatch creature being up here? And then I kind of chuckled after that because I didn't want them to think I was a crazy person. And uh, none of them laughed or chuckled. And one of them started to talk about the subject said, we think there's possibly three of them up here that we think's a family unit, two adults and a juvenile. So then I kind of thought, well, you know, they might be setting me up. They're gonna, they're all gonna break out laughing in a minute and say they were just kidding. Not, you know, not really, we don't believe in that. But they never did. So what is the real truth? What really is out there? Big thanks to Rocky. That original music by Snap Judgment, music maestros, Pat Masidi Miller, Renzo Gorio, and Leon Morimoto. For more stories of what's happening on the border, check out Rocky's book, Out on Foot, Nightly Patrols and Ghostly Tales of a U.S. Border Patrol Agent. We're going to have links to the world of Rocky on our website, snapjudgment.org. Now then, Snappers. You've waited long enough. We've got big news. Drum roll, please. Snap Judgment proudly presents Spooked, the podcast. 11 full episodes of Spook Stories starting right now. Spookpodcast.org. Snap Judgment's very first spinoff show, and we are terrified to let it see the light of day. Real people sharing their real stories of battling back the forces of the night. Subscribe to Snap Judgment Presents Spooked with a quickness because we just released the first two Spooked episodes on your podcast device and we're dropping new episodes every week from now until our Halloween spectacular. Get Spooked 
at spookpodcast.org. But always remember and never forget, don't turn out the lights. In just a moment, it's back to the future when some dear friends of mine climb a mountain and uncover a force that should have remained hidden forever. Indeed, the Snap Judgment Campfire Tales 4 Primal Episode returns. No, you can't go to the bathroom. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue and guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Pull up a seat right next to this roaring fire we have here at Snap Judgment's Campfire Tales, the primal episode. It was a long time ago, pre-snap, but I squeezed into a plane next to some guy who's as big as I am. Tight quarters. We'll get to talking and he's super cool. After returning to the bay, one barbecue leads to another. Pretty soon, we're pals. Then one night, Ian, he introduces me to his buddy, Stuart. And they start telling me about a trip they went on, an Indonesian mountain trek. And we're sitting around a fire, just like this one. And I see them eyeing each other. What? What's going on? Finally, Ian says, do you want to tell him? And Stewart says, I guess we should. After about six hours of hiking, we were singing a song or whatever you do to keep yourself sort of putting one foot in front of the other. But we heard this sort of like, we kind of stop. We're sort of armchair naturalists as well. That might be a uh, yellow-bellied, you know, knuckle-cracker. And then we'd hear, and we kept walking towards it and got closer and closer, and we were like, that's not a bird. That's a person. And we kind of bushwhack, you know, about 10 yards off the trail, and there's a man, an Indonesian man, lying in his tiny, tiny, like, bikini underpants, in, a, in his tent, which has collapsed, and he's got... Um, Sprite. Well, he's got a Sprite he's trying to open, like, but he can't open it. He's got cutlery and all sorts of crystal wear. You know, on the edge of sort of like a, a pretty steep drop-off. You know, he was, he, was, he, was, he was hypothermic. Yeah, he was lying there, shivering, making no sense, trying to open his Sprite with like a piece of wood. So Ian just took him... And he just hugged him, just hugged the life into this guy, a total stranger. When, when you hugged him, did he try to get away? No, no. He was, uh, was kind of like a big kid. He was sort of like having a baby. So after we've realized he's coming to, we try to carry him down this horrible trail of giant steps. And we each put him on our back and we tried and we'd make it about 100 yards. And I think when Stuart was carrying him, uh, he peed all over Stuart as well. <laughs> 
And uh, so we decided to split up and that I would uh, hike to town. So I walk like three or four hours. I actually run into some farmers on the outskirts of town. And I say in my budding Indonesian, man, mountain, dying, help us. And so they sort of tie their oxen to a tree. Ten minutes later appears the biggest Indonesian man we've ever seen. He's got big muscles. He's huge. We met up the rescue party. It was so exciting. They called. And I remember that the, the rescue party was pretty upset. They thought they were going to save an American. You know what I mean? They were all like <laughs> picturing international headlines. And when they found out that it was just some Indonesian guy, you know, like, they were like ready to leave him there, you know, and you just you kind of like, look at, we're taking them. <laughs> and then they, you know, sort of took time running them back on their shoulders or whatever. Well, the Indonesians wanted to know what this Yahoo was doing on the mountain. So in speaking with the, the, the host family, they were using a word we couldn't understand. We agreed on the word was magic. He was on that mountain looking for magic. What do you mean he went to find magic? He was like a city slicker who had come up to the country to go find magic. So we discussed magic with our host family. They said, you might want to go see a man who lives down the road called the Tuki Man. Who's the Tuki Man? Uh, And they said, well, he's a magic man. And they all said, and he can take you to see the tigers. And we thought, that sounds great. We strap on our backpacks, we get on these two mopeds, and off we go to a town called Kibun Baru and arrive at this really sort of terrifying-looking ramshackle house that was the Tuki Man's house. And out walks a four-and-a-half-foot-tall man with the most bizarre haircut you've ever seen. He's got two like balls of hair on his head, sort of like where antlers would go in a deer, but they're just two circles. He's kind of got this impish little smile, and he was very, very, very cool and invited us into his house. Tuki Man and Stuart are, are talking. It was dark, and there were two candles burning, and all of a sudden, some guy comes in. 14-year-old boy just sort of staggered in the room and fell down at the foot of the bed. And I'm peering over the edge, and, and the, the kid at the foot of the bed is starting to get a little agitated and starting to move around and moan and uh, as though he's you know, got a fever or something. And I look over, and I don't think too much of it, and I don't want to break the conversation. And then, you know, like, things are, he's really thrashing around down there. And I say to Stu, I look at him, I'm like, man, th- 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 there's a guy down here. He's not doing very well. Stuart's like, shh, you know, I have an important discussion with Tuki Man. And now the kid is flopping around like a tuna after it's been brought out of the ocean. He's like, you know, flapping around. And I'm like, Stu, as this guy is thrashing around, a bunch of kids run in to see what's going on. And the kids are screaming. They're terrified. And the Tuki Man just kind of moves in and takes over. Stu and I move out of the way. And he grabs the guy's hand, and he starts speaking to him in another language. And the women bring in a glass of water with flowers in it. And the Tuki man just takes a glass of water with flowers in it and sort of holds his head, and the kid greedily gulps the the glass of water down with the flowers, flowers and all. And then he kind of calms down, and we thought, oh, great, you know, obviously he's okay, but we're not really sure what we're witnessing. 
And then the kid jumps up in some kind of like super ninja pose in the middle of the living room and does like some serious Bruce Lee. He's doing these kicks, karate chops. And right then, the wind starts blowing really bad. And the tin roof on the place is like, and I started running for the door. And the only thing that kept me there was Stuart. He grabbed me by the sleeve and he said, just wait, it's gonna be okay. The Tukey man knows what he's doing. And so wait, I, wait, 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 slow down. Stuart, what, do you, what, did this happen? That happened. The karate that he started doing or whatever martial art or what, you know, it was, it was controlled and disciplined and, you know, not something that just anybody would do if we were flanneling around like pretending to do capoeira or something like that. At, at that point, I remember feeling like um, whatever was trying to happen, I might have uh, been able to help, you know, if I were to just open up, you know, and so I, 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 I kind of did. I guess I just um, sort of, I let it through me. And it was about at that point where, where the convulsions transformed, you know, almost as if the Tookie Man needed, like, uh, everybody there to be um, channeling, you know, if you believe in that stuff or whatever. I don't really know how I stand on it, but that's, that's how I felt at that moment. And that's when he did come back. Well, later on, uh, what Tookie Man told us was that that was his father who had come back through that boy and you can take that for what it is but that's what we saw and it it did seem to make a certain sense and there was a a power um the wind and the and the smells and the water i remember he was very very thirsty and that's that's what they ended up telling us that that was that was why the father came back you know he had some things to say but he was thirsty Stuart, yeah let's cut this stuff do you think that the Tukey man's father came back through that boy and drank that water. I, I, I do. Being a scientist, I necessarily have to amend that by saying there's a lot of possibilities out there, but the boy had a transformation. We saw and we felt. It wasn't just that you if you just saw it, but it's that you could feel it, you know? What did it feel like? And what, what, what about this, this, this pounding on the roof, this electricity in the air? It felt like the Tukey man was really in control. But then there came a point, and I felt like I let the, the whole thing go through me, and I was continuing to let it go through me. And this is where I got scared to the core. You're wondering, if you are letting something channel through you, maybe you lose yourself. You know, maybe it's going to take you, you know, if you're that opened up. And at that point, I shut off. And at that point, the karate master lay back down. And that's something I look back on, and I, I don't know if I, I, I regret it or, or not. You know, maybe you just have to know when to say, like, well, what's fun is fun, but I'm not going to lose my soul or whatever. And, and I just, on a real deep level, I just, I just closed off, and it stopped. You know, that's where you really see you can, you can go as deep as you want to go. You know, it's there, and you can touch it. And you can be part of it, you know, and it's all, you know, how, how far down the, you know, rabbit hole are you, are you willing to go, I guess. So that's the part that scared me, you know, and, and you look at yourself in like a real profoundest of ways. And, uh, you know, you said, was I a coward at that moment or was I, I don't know, but I, I, I know what went through me and, uh, and I know what I felt more than I know what I saw.
How far are you willing to go? Don't chicken out. On the Snap Judgment Campfire Tales Primal episode, thank you, Ian Fraser and Stuart. Open up, but don't open up too much. Original score was by Davey Kim. The piece was produced by the Uber producer himself, Mark Ristich. We're celebrating the release of Snap Judgment's first spinoff podcast, Spooked, available right now at spookedpodcast.org. We're dropping new episodes from today through Halloween. Let someone know, because you don't want to get scared alone. Now, our next story comes from one of the very first Snap Judgment episodes. My man Douglas, he walked home from work, arrived at his apartment, opened the door of his apartment building, and right there, lying on the floor waiting, Douglas saw something that that gave him pause. I walked into the apartment foyer and I looked down and there was a Polaroid photograph on the ground. So I picked it up, I looked at it, and it actually was a picture of what I was standing there looking at in real life. In other words, it was a picture of the door I was about to go through, a picture of the foyer in which I was standing. Someone had taken a picture and thrown it on the ground. Correct. So I walked over to the stairway and I looked and there was another picture on the ground. Now, and it's a picture of the stairway. A picture of the stairway. And you're like, what are you, what are you thinking at this point? Now I, I'm just a little uneasy because the now from... The first picture being maybe an accident, I dropped it on my way in. The second one, it's deliberate. Somebody's up to something. Yes. So at this point, I'm I'm just becoming a little nervous. The hair started to go up on my arms for some reason. So you get picture number three, you look at it, and you continue up towards your apartment. So now I go to the hallway door that leads to the apartment wing. So I opened the door, and there on the ground was another photograph. And I can see down the hallway, it looked like a million miles down there. I can see my door, and I can see that there's a spill of light coming from the apartment across from my door, and that door is open. And there's another photograph, one last photograph, on the ground down at the end of the hallway. I, at this point, was scared out of my mind because this was the end. I stood there for a moment, absolutely quiet. Got to make a snap judgment right now. Either I'm going to go to my apartment or I want to do something else. What did you do? I practically fled that building. What did you discover? Discovered that after I had left, somebody noticed there was a guy, the apartment tenant of the apartment that had the open door, was sitting in his window. And they called the police. They came, and he was mentally ill and had been off his medication and was threatening to jump. So they got him down and saved his life. What did the final picture look like? The final picture was of that window in which he was sitting, except that there was nobody in the picture. It was simply the open window. He jumped. I can only surmise that, yeah, he would have made that picture true, just like the other four. So it would have been a window without him in it, and he would have jumped to kill himself. Trust those premonitions. Yes, please do. 
You trust yourself, Doug? I do. Snap judgment. Premonitions. Primal. Big thanks to Douglas Leach for sharing a tiny bit of his world. Original music by David Last. Story was produced by Mark to the Ristich. A little bit freaked out? A little bit? Wow. On Snap Judgment, the Campfire Tales episode continues. We take out the hypnotist watch. Tick-tock. And send you back to a past life in order to reveal a very dirty deed. In just a moment, stay true. WNYC Studios, welcome back to Snap Judgment, Campfire Tales 4, the primal episode. Now, please be advised, because for this next piece, you may emerge on the other end with your mind blown. Snap Judgment's Liz Mack spoke to Bob Snow. Let me tell you something. When I was commander of homicide, one of my biggest admonishments to all my detectives was do not get emotionally involved in your cases. If you get emotionally involved, you can't see things you need to see. But believe me, I was really emotionally involved in this case. Tell tell me about how this all started. We're at that party. I don't remember what holiday it was. I was talking to a psychologist, Kathy Graben. I read a book about past life regression therapy, and I was talking to her about it. Past life regression therapy is when the psychologist or psychiatrist hypnotizes you and supposedly takes you back to a life you lived before your present one. I basically told her I thought it was just foolishness. I didn't realize that Kathy used past life regression, so I think I was being kind of obnoxious, putting it down so bad. And she gave me the name of a friend of hers, Dr. Mary Ellen Griffith, who did pass life regression, and told me, try it yourself and see if you really still think it's silly. I said, I'd do it. Well, actually, I, the next day I woke up and I was a little more clear-headed and sober, and I'd, I thought, this is stupid. I'm not doing this. But it seemed like from that day on, I ran to Kathy constantly. And when I'd see her, she'd always ask me, have you made the appointment yet? I got tired of making excuses every time I saw Kathy. So finally, I just decided, well, I'll, I'll do it. But I also decided I was going to take my own tape recorder along, record the session, so I could bring it back to Kathy and show her how silly it was. Being a police officer, you want evidence, you want proof before you make any claims. And so I basically made the appointment to go see Dr. Griffith to have a past life regression. Dr. Griffith's office is in kind of a dark, dingy building. I sat down on the couch, which was the most uncomfortable couch I think I'd ever sat on. Dr. Griffith, very nice lady, had a kind of a funny, kind of a musical, sing-songy type voice. So let's now And she told me, close your eyes, and we started talking. She said, okay, we're ready to go. She said, can you imagine a balloon? Now, I was sitting there, and there's a window to my right, and I could see a big purple circle. Of course, I knew it was just a light through the window at the right, to where I see a purple balloon. She said, okay, imagine yourself getting in the balloon and taking it up and going, I'm trying to imagine this for her. She said, land the balloon, tell me what you see. Well, 
I didn't see nothing. I, you know, I'm thinking to myself, this is her daydream, not mine. And nothing happened. And she kept saying, okay, land the balloon. Tell me where you're at, what you see. We went through this at least a dozen times. And she finally said, there's 12 steps. We're going down to the valley, and there's 12 steps. And she goes, 12, 12, 11, 11, 11. Each number is getting longer and slower and drawn out. 10. But when she reached one, something really bizarre happened, something really stunning. All of a sudden, I, I was in a valley. I don't think I, I mean, I just imagined I was in a valley or a daydream I was in a valley. I was in a valley. It was vividly clear. I could see the leaves on the trees. I could see the veins in the leaves. And I could feel a breeze in my face. So Dr. Griffith asked me, he says, look down and describe yourself to me. I looked down and I could see a pair of dirty, hairy legs and I could see I was wearing dirty, matted fur. In my left hand, I was carrying a piece of a tree limb. I thought, well, obviously I'm a caveman. Between each episode, there used to be a light up high above you. She said, go into the light. Looked like the late 1800s because there were horse-drawn carriages and gas lights. And I could see it's an artist studio. And the room is just filled with dozens of paintings. At that moment, I was painting a portrait. It was the portrait of a hunchback woman. The hunch on her back was very, very prominent in the painting. And I was just putting the very, very last touches on it. And I told Dr. Griffith that I wanted to take one last look at one of my paintings. She says, tell me what you regret about this life. Told her I regretted it. We didn't have children because my wife couldn't have children. But then, right after I said it, the tape recorder I'd brought along clicked off. And I opened my eyes, and that was it. The session was over. Is there anything particular that's going through your mind right then? Do you really have to think, what does this all mean? Because I liked my life the way it was. My life was very grounded, very solid. I didn't want this other stuff. If I proved it, then it means everything I believed my whole life, my whole belief in how the universe works, is wrong. I'd have to completely stop, take back everything I ever believed in, throw it in the trash can, and bring in new beliefs. So, okay, what happens after this? Did you, do you see Kathy? I, I called Kathy on the phone and told her, I said, well, that I had seen some very interesting things. She was very gracious. I think she realized I didn't push her or anything. She said, thank you very much. Uh, but I think she could read between the lines. I was becoming obsessed about this. And let me tell you, as a police officer, I know when people have a really deep obsessions, it seldom turns out well. It was probably a month or so afterwards before I finally said, look, Bob, you, you got to do something about this. So my idea was I would go to Napa's Public Library. I would just start thumbing through their art books. By the way, this was in 1992. When you did research, you had to go down to the library and pull books off the shelf. And I figured it wouldn't take me long. Case closed. Go back to your life the way it was. Come on. How many portraits of hunchback women could there be? It took me several months to go have not only lunch hour, but weekends. And how many books did you go through? Hundreds, hundreds. 
probably oh four or five hundred books at least. I went through every book that you know, public library had. I went through all the books every each bookstore had. I went through probably a half dozen bookstores right in Annapolis. I went to a number of art galleries and talked to art dealers to see if I could find the paintings. And so I, I wasn't ready to give up yet. So finally, my, as a last end resort, I finally went back to Dr. Griffith for a second session. I thought maybe if I could go back and have her access the artist's life, I could find more information. And she took me back to several past lives who were very vivid, but they were, they were all so far back in history, you know, you couldn't decide whether anything was real or not real. But interestingly enough, every time she tried to take me to the artist's life, nothing would happen. And when it was over, I, I asked her why. And she says, you already know everything you need to know. All the evidence I had, I had followed it to its end and it hadn't led anywhere. It basically, it was a cold case. So I hadn't told anyone. I thought there'll be an unsolved mystery I simply take to the grave with me. It was getting towards my wife and I's anniversary, so we decided to go to New Orleans. Our last day in New Orleans, I suggested we go window shopping in the French Quarter. And I noticed as we're walking down Royal Street, the galleries are getting smaller and the paintings much more obscure. So finally we get down to a gallery at the very end of Royal Street. And there's a uh, portrait on an easel in the corner. And I walked by and gave it a glance. And then I stopped like I'd went into a glass wall. And I spun around, and it was a portrait of the hunchback woman. I could still see every brushstroke, and it was identical. My heart was beating. I could feel electricity running out my arms and my stomach. Probably for four or five minutes, I just stood staring at the portrait. One of the uh, workers in the art gallery obviously saw me staring at a painting and thought, hot dog, here's a sale. So he came over to me and said, bet you're thinking how nice I look over your fireplace, aren't you? So I asked him, I says, uh, I don't recognize the artist. I says, uh, who is the artist? So he said, hang on a second. So he walked over to his desk and come back and he had a little bio, probably a, oh, maybe five or six sentences. And it said, J. Carol Beckwith, born 1852, died in 1917. So I started reading the biography and I found five different things that I had seen in the regression. So I asked the dealer, I said, I told him, I said, I've seen this painting somewhere before. I said, has it been an exhibition somewhere? He said, no, he said, this has been a private collection for years. But let me be honest with you, he said, Beckwith wasn't that good or that famous. He says, I should let this go pretty cheap. So, so do you buy the painting? No, no. It went, they wanted like $5,000 for it. My wife would have killed me. At that moment, Melanie came downstairs and we left. But I felt good. Now I had a name, date of birth, date of death. I could go back and I could reopen this. This case was no longer on the shelf. The next day we were back in Annapolis. So I went down to the public library and I started researching on J. Carol Beckwith. He simply was not that famous or that good. That kind of bugged me. I thought, wait a minute, how could I know these things about him if he's that well unknown? I happened onto a book, and at the very bottom of the page there was a footnote that said this information came from the diaries of James Carroll Beckwith that are kept on file at the National Academy of Design in New York City. Wrote a letter to him, basically asking if they were available to look at. 
While I was waiting for the diary to come, I went through and listened to the tape of my regression. And I made a list of various things I had said, dates, places, causes of death, what have you, that could be proved, disproved. And I found I had 28 things. Now, what I was looking for at this point wasn't more proof about Beckwith. What I was looking for, I wanted to find one or two disproving things. For example, I had said we couldn't have children because my wife uh, couldn't have children. Now, if he had kids, then what? this is not true memories. This is not real. Why is it so important that you disproved that what happened in your regression is real? Why don't you just want to prove it? If I prove reincarnation is real, again, you have to throw away all your thoughts about how the universe works. And I'm certainly not going to do that unless I got some solid, solid evidence. So I thought, maybe I'll have my wife. I'll talk to her and see what she thinks about the whole idea. Maybe she can see something I didn't see. My wife thought I was nuts. She said, okay, hang on a second. She says, I'll tell you what, I'll look into this case. I'll find the information about Beckwith you didn't know was there. My wife was a, uh, the child abuse detective and a very excellent detective at that. She started looking into the case, and she started looking intently into it. And she didn't find a single thing, not a single thing I hadn't found, nothing. She told me very plainly, look, Bob, okay, forget about it. Don't tell nobody but me. Captains don't go talking about this. I thought that was probably probably solid advice. It really was. If I was to prove this or not, this would cause all kind of turmoil in my life as a police officer, tremendous turmoil. But I couldn't let it go. I spent a year, I read every single page of Beckwith's diary, every single page. There were over 17,000 pages of diary. And I found out that sure enough, his wife had had a very, very serious miscarriage, and after that she couldn't have children. He talked about his mother being in church and having a stroke caused by a blood clot and dying. That he died in 1970, he drank wine. I saw myself die in a large city. He died in New York City. Instead of finding this proving fact, I kept finding one fact after another that agreed with what I had seen. Before I was done, I ended up proving all 28 facts, every single one. Every single thing I had said during aggression was right out of Beckwith's life. There is no doubt this case is solved. Do you believe in reincarnation now? Absolutely. I mean, how else do you explain it? How would I have Carol Beckwith's memories in my mind? Police officers, you always look for the simplest explanation because 99% of the time, it's the right one. The simplest explanation is that I carry Beckwith's memories in my mind. So, you know, how important is reputation when you are uh, the police commander? You're the backbone of the police department. And so your, your reputation as a, a police commander is very, very important. You want to have an image in the community of strength and stability and all. It could basically injure upward mobility in the police department. If you started talking about things that weren't really accepted as what a police captain should believe in. It seemed like too important a story to keep quiet. So many things happened. So much information came from so many unexpected sources. Believe me, my wife was really dead set against me doing this. She was positive it would damage my career. And she was right, as it turned out. What happens when you come out uh, to the public about what happened to you? I kept various publicity about it, and each time I do it, it would really upset the command staff more. Eventually, what happened is, even though I, the last year I was in homicide, 
we had an 83% clearance rate, and our murder rate was the lowest I've been in 20 years. They moved me out of there and put me on the citizen service desk where people come to get uh, photographed or get fingerprinted. So they put me in a dead-end job hoping I would retire. My career basically flatlined after that. Do you wish that you had never stepped into that hypnotist's office? Yeah, I don't know. You know, I've often thought that, which way I'd have been happier. But that's apparently that wasn't the point of my life. So the, the case is solved, right? So what did you do to mark the occasion? Well, I was in New York. I found out that, that Beckwith's scrapbooks were at the New York Historical Society. And I found out he was buried in Kensico Cemetery, which is up in Valhalla, New York. And I thought how cool it would be to visit my own grave. It was in August, but it was a very nice, pleasant day. It wasn't real hot. It's a huge, huge cemetery, and I walked all the way through it. It didn't even break out of sweat. But I didn't realize. I don't know why, but I don't think you're supposed to do this. As I got closer to the grave, my heart was just beating terrible fast. I was just running on sweat, and I could feel, you know, you have electricity was trembling out of my arms, not my fingertips. I started having a tremendous panic attack. I found some workers who were trimming some hedges close by, so I had them take a picture of me standing at the grave just to show everybody I wasn't scared. I was terrified. After that, I left. I can't worry about James Carroll Beckwith. You really can't live as other people. I mean, come on. I mean, you've already done that. You have to deal with the person you are in the present. I realized I had to simply go on with my life as Bob Snow. I went, got on a train, flew back to Naples, went on with my life. Big thanks to Bob Snow. He's written extensively about his experiences, and we'll have a link on our website, snapjudgment.org. The original score was by Renzo Gorio, and the piece was produced by Liz Mack. If you dug it, we can't wait for you to hear the new Spook Podcast, spookpodcast.org. You asked for it, and now you've got it. Real stories from real people much braver than I. Subscribe to Spooked at spookpodcast.org. New episodes waiting for you right now. And don't turn out the lights. Snap Judgment was produced by the team that always sleeps under the bed. Light a candle for the producer, Mark Ristich. Pat McCini Miller, Anna Sussman, Liz Mack, Joe Rosenberg, Nancy Lopez, Eliza Smith, Leon Morimoto, Renzo Gorio, Taylor DeCock, Jasmine Aguilera. And this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could send the kids on a treasure hunt in the woods, only for them to realize there is no treasure. This is in the woods. And they're the ones being hunted. And even then, you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC. <laughs>